My brave lad, he sleeps in his faded coat of blue. In a lonely grave alone lies the heart that beats so true. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. No more the Welcome to War of the Rebellion, Stories of the Civil War. I'm your host, Leon Meowser, and this is my fifth episode. Today we are starting Chapter 2 of our Regimental History, reading Under the Maltese Cross, Antietam to Appomattox, The Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania, 1861-1865, to 1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment. Really excited to read this chapter for you all, so let's get started. And I have a ton of things to talk about once the episode is over towards the tail end there. Without further ado, let's begin. Chapter 2. Camp Chase. Regiment reaches Washington at 6 a.m., takes breakfast at Soldier's Retreat in Swamp Oodle District, hardtack coffee, and salt pork for breakfast, march to Camp Chase, long roll sounded at midnight in Camp Chase, 155th assigned to Alabac's Brigade, Humphreys Division, 5th Corps, march to Fairfax Seminary, march to the city of Washington, Colonel Allen orders wagon load of oysters, Humphreys Division exchange, Belgian rifles, and sword bayonets, for Harper's Ferry Muskets with Buck and Ball Cartridge. Halleck orders Humphrey's division to move. Arrival in Washington After a short stop in Baltimore and a detention en route at the Relay House, the regiment reached Washington, still in the uncomfortable freight cars at 6 a.m. Not an official, guide, or chaperone of any kind was on hand to receive or to pilot to breakfast the tired and hungry 155th Regiment. Colonel Allen and staff, however, who were excellent and diligent foragers on this first assumption of command of the regiment, soon discovered the famous Swamp Oodle District, where the soldiers' retreat was located. This was the name of the barracks in which the meals to new regiments were furnished by the United States at all hours. Colonel Allen's organization, approximating a thousand men, needed no military drill or rehearsal to enable it to get into line promptly on the colonel's orders to fall in on this occasion for breakfast. They immediately stormed the soldiers' retreat and took possession of the eating stands and the contents thereof. Their first government meal consisted of hardtack, black, sugarless, creamless coffee with tin cup accompaniment, and boiled salt pork. The soldiers' guests were allowed to stand and wait on themselves throughout the so-called meal. Forced March to Camp Chase About ten o'clock, the provost guard of Washington assisted in gathering in many of the sightseeing boys, and they were marched in a body back to the soldiers' retreat, from whence they had wandered. Orders had come by this time that the regiment was needed at the front and should immediately march across Long Bridge to Camp Chase on Arlington Heights is at once packed up and made the march, under a broiling sun, arriving at Camp Chase late in the evening. 
In this camp, beautiful tents were distributed to the regiment, and the recruits soon began to attain a more soldierly appearance and deportment. The few days they were permitted to remain in this fine camp afforded an opportunity for the officers to become acquainted with their men. Guard and picket duties were also explained to the men who went on that duty. To test the promptness of the command to respond to orders for action, Colonel Allen in this camp had the long roll sounded at midnight, which meant a call to arms. Their first test of the men was highly successful. They got out of their elegant new tents with great alacrity and promptly fell into the ranks all believing the alarm to be a genuine and a real call to action, and that the enemy, who was nearby, had been discovered in force preparing for an attack on the new camp. However, this was not the case, and Colonel Allen, before dismissing the regiment, thanked the officers and men for their exceedingly prompt response to the long roll, and at the same time he declared that it was merely to test the regiment, that he had the call, two arms sounded, and the regiment routed from their tents at that unseasonable hour. Olibeck's Brigade, Humphreys Division. In Camp Chase orders were read assigning the 155th Regiment to the newly formed Brigade of the Pennsylvania Regiments commanded by Colonel P.H. Olibeck, a veteran of the Mexican War. It was also simultaneously announced that the newly formed Brigade would form part of the new division organized, also composed of Pennsylvania Regiments, and which had been placed under command of Brigadier General Andrew A. Humphreys, late Chief of Topographical Engineers, on the staff of General McKellen, and that the brigade and division had been assigned to the 5th Army Corps, commanded by General Fitz John Porter. The regiment the next morning marched, unmolested by guerrillas or Black Horse Cavalry, a distance of four or five miles to the vicinity of Fairfax Seminary, Virginia, and remained there all day September 11th. General McClellan resumes command. General George B. McClellan, who but a week prior to this date had been specially ordered by President Lincoln to again assume command of the Army of the Potomac, was already leading his army in the Maryland campaign against the Confederates, whose columns were already invading that state. The rear guard of the Confederates, however, still tarried in close vicinity of Fairfax Seminary and other points near the capital their object being to detain Union troops from joining McClellan's army in pursuit of Lee. The day following the midnight test by Colonel Allen already described, and the march the next day to Fairfax Seminary by the regiment, it was discovered that all of the rear guards of the enemy had left their post, and were in full and rapid march to join Lee's columns invading Maryland. The Man with the Musket Soldiers pass on from this rage of renown, this anthill, commotion, and strife. Pass by where the marbles and bronzes look down, with their fast-frozen gestures of life. On, out to the nameless who lie neath the gloom, of the pitying cypress and pine, your man is the man of the sword and the plume, but the man of the musket is mine. An Oyster Feast, Colonel Allen's Treat Humphrey's division, on September 12th, marched from Fairfax Seminary and crossed over the Potomac on the aqueduct to Georgetown, and proceeding thence to Washington, where it encamped for the night. 
The 155th, after this marching, was short of rations, and the men were beginning to feel the pangs of hunger. Colonel Allen was equal to the occasion, and endeared himself to his command by promptly supplying the failure of the commissary to reach the regimental bivouac with the necessary rations. The colonel visited Harvey's celebrated oyster depot on Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, and ordered a wagon load of oysters in the shell to be delivered forthwith at the camp of the 155th, in order that no mistake in the destination of the oysters should occur, Colonel Allen took a seat on the wagon accompanied by Mr. Harvey, the caterer. More welcome visitors, or more welcome goods, could not be imagined than the considerate colonel and the contents of the wagon. The hungry soldiers, however, and especially those in the ranks from the country unused to opening bivalves, had their patience sorely tested by the delay in getting at the oysters. The governmental power of eminent domain was exercised by pressing into service a number of contrabands hanging around the camp, and commanding them with their oyster knives to open the shells. This oyster feast was enjoyed immensely. The patriotic Harvey declined to receive any compensation from Colonel Allen, and announced that if one wagon load was not enough, he would send others up. At the close of the banquet, the regiment gave Colonel Allen three hearty cheers, whereupon he referred briefly to the public spirit Mr. Harvey had displayed in refusing compensation. This statement elicited three cheers and a tiger for Harvey. The tardy wagons, with the supplies of hardtack and coffee for the regiment, however, joined the camp during the night in time for distribution of army rations at breakfast. Great confusion, however, existed in army circles in Washington at this time. Owing to the many unassigned soldiers and scattered organizations, many of the 155th on the march through the streets of Washington became detached from their comrades and were unable to find the camp that night. A number of these sufficient to compose a company, as if defending the capital, wandered into Jackson Park and bivouacked at the foot of the bronze equestrian statue of the rampant horse on which Andrew Jackson appears to be so bravely mounted and welcoming the public with his military chapeau. These patriotic stragglers, however, failed to share in the distribution of Harvey's oysters, and great was their disappointment on missing the rare treat. Regiment Armed with Effective Weapons Humphrey's division, at this halt in Washington, exchanged the ponderous Belgian rifles and sword bayonets received at Harrisburg, the military board presided over by Captain A.T.A. Torbett, USA, having condemned them as unfit for service, these arms were undoubtedly imposed upon the government in the emergency's effect of weapons, and no doubt some grafter of that period laid the foundation of a colossal fortune in thus swindling the government. In place of these useless arms left at the arsenal in Washington, the regiment received the Springfield rifles, being the old-fashioned muzzle-loader, with ramrod and percussion cap accompaniments. The ammunition used in these exchanged guns was three buckshot and a bullet, called buck and ball, which in actual service became destructive only at close range. As further evidence of the extraordinary confusion existing in Washington in the administration of General H.W. Halleck, an incident connected with Humphrey's division at this date is worthy of mention. As General-in-Chief, Halleck issued the subjoined order on September 13th to General Humphreys, 
ordering him to leave Washington with his newly formed division within a few hours under pain of being court-martialed. This censure of one so energetic and fiery a leader as Humphreys for tardiness and want of zeal, it is needless to state, was most uncalled for. Copy, Headquarters of the Army, Washington, September 13, 1862. Unless General Humphreys immediately leaves to take command of his division in the field, he will be arrested for disobedience of orders. Signed, H.W. Halleck, General-in-Chief. Addressed to General A. A. Humphreys. This astonishing dispatch to General Humphreys was a most uncalled-for aspersion and betrayed lamentable ignorance on the part of Halleck of the situation. This controversy involving the commander and men of Humphreys' division is deemed of sufficient importance to incorporate in the appendix. General Humphreys officially replied to Halleck's charge and demanded that a court of inquiry be convened to exonerate him from the unjust accusation implied in Halleck's preemptory order just quoted. Chapter 3 Forced March to Antietam March of a Humphreys Division for Western Maryland commenced Sunday morning, September 14th. Make 15 miles in heat and dusty roads, cannonading heard during the day in direction of South Mountain, General Humphreys at head of column, march continued on September 15th, abandoned articles of clothing and knapsacks along the route, forced march resumed, reach of Clarksville late in the evening, forced march resumed September 16th, September 17th, Humphreys' division reaches the Monocacy River, debris of burned bridge, first real evidence of war, paroled Union prisoners, Humphreys' division halts at Frederick. Covers approaches to Washington. Forced to march to join Army of Potomac resumed. Humphreys' division arrives at Antietam in the morning of 18th. Harrowing sights and scenes. Humphreys' division takes position in reserve of Army of Potomac. Confederate dead and wounded left in hands of Union forces. Cordial reception of Commander-in-Chief. Company G of 155th selected to engage in reconnaissance. Camp McAuley. 155th without shelter or medical supplies. President Lincoln reviews Army of Potomac. Colonel J.H. Polston, representing Governor Curtin, presents state flag to 155th. Regiment without accommodations for sick or the benefit of clergy. The Antietam Campaign The march into Maryland of the eight new regiments of Pennsylvania troops, aggregating 8,000 recruits composing Humphrey's division, was commenced very early Sunday morning, September 14th, the shortest route from Washington to join McClellan's army being in the direction of western Maryland. The troops, though heavily burdened, marched all day in the great heat and dusty roads, making 15 miles, which was regarded as a most satisfactory feat for fresh troops, but little over a week from home. Late in the afternoon, the division, or rather those who kept up with the colors, encamped for the night on the outskirts of the beautiful village of Rockville, Maryland. 
This camp will be remembered as the place where Private Robert A. Hill of Company F was shot in the foot by an over-officious guard for trespassing on a peach orchard. General Humphreys at the head of his division During this day's march, the cannonading, opening the Battle of South Mountain, could be distinctly heard by the troops. As the column was hurriedly marching in that direction, it was obvious to all that serious work was before the regiment. General Humphreys, the division commander, made his appearance with his staff at the head of the division during this day, and became very conspicuous, riding backward and forward along the column on his superb charger, appearing to be the very embodiment of energy and martial bearing. At this time, General Humphreys seemed to be a man of about 45 years of age, having fine classical features, wearing glasses, a military cape, and a black slouch hat. He had a sturdy, well-knit figure, and in his movements and conversation displayed a most earnest and determined manner. Rockville, Maryland, where the regiment camped that night, proved interesting as being the site of General McClellan's army headquarters two days previous. September 15th was spent in continuing the march from Rockville from early in the morning until three o'clock in the afternoon, when a long halt was taken for dinner. Among the noteworthy incidents of the forced march made by Humphrey's division the preceding two days were numerous well-filled knapsacks lying on each side of the route where they had been tossed by foot-sore men who had carried them. New army overcoats and blankets issued by the government had also been thrown away by soldiers, who were unable to carry them farther on the fatiguing marches. Teamsters, the army wagon trains who followed, often dismounted and picked up these abandoned articles on the roadside, and in many cases were known to sell them to citizens along the route. After dinner marching was resumed, and the same scenes continued until late in the evening when the column reached Clarksville and bivouacked for the night, tired and worn out by the severe marching in hot weather. Early next day, September 16th, the column resumed the march, passing through the villages of Hyattstown and Urbana, the populations of which treated the marching troops very coolly. There were no cheers nor encouraging words uttered by any of the inhabitants as the Union troops marched through these places. The regiment this day manifested evidence of fatigue, and many more knapsacks, overcoats, and impediments to marching were thrown away by the command. Night overtook many of the men who were unable to keep up, lagging far behind the advance of the regiment, unable to maintain the speed, which General Humphreys, Colonel Allaback, and Colonel Allen, all riding superb horses, so strenuously urged them to do. Nature asserted itself in many cases, and from sheer exhaustion, many of the troops could go no farther. Others turned in at points where they broke down and formed temporary messes and groups for the night, one of the rendezvous affording a night shelter for the broken-down and footsore inexperienced soldiers was a young ladies' seminary building, recently vacated. There were many rooms and dormitories in the building, also a fine orchard of ripe apples and peaches adjoining, and plenty of limpid water, all of which made it for a night's lodging a most welcome discovery. All the rooms on the different floors were occupied by soldiers who had dropped out of their ranks from exhaustion. The fatigued occupants retired very early. The Confederates of Longstreet's Corps had occupied this building a few nights previous, and they had written their autographs and many unpatriotic inscriptions 
with burnt sticks on the beautifully white-plastered walls. They had registered their names, ranks, and regiments conspicuously, some recording disloyal epigrams and other epitaphs on Abraham Lincoln. The Union troops, about 100 in number, who found shelter in the hospital seminary also took burnt sticks and recorded tributes far from complimentary to one Jefferson Davis and the Southern Confederacy. Indulging at the same time in loyal cartoons of Lincoln and Washington, etc., the names of John M. Lancaster, Theophilus Kalin, Newell D. Lutenschauser, Thomas P. Tomer, James P. O'Neill, Robert P. Douglas, Hugh Leonard, James Finnegan, and John Crookham, all of the 155th, are among those now recalled as having duly recorded their names, ranks, etc., that night on the walls of the parlors of the seminary. Private McKenna, of Company E, especially distinguished himself on this occasion as a lightning artist, and was given three cheers by the comrades who witnessed his performance and unanimously voted regimental artist. Before resuming the march the next morning, the seminary orchard was invaded by the visiting Union soldiers, and the ripe apples and peaches liberally appropriated at breakfast. Scenes at Monocacy River paroled prisoners. Humphrey's division, after resuming the march September 17th, reached the Monocacy River about 10 o'clock a.m., where it halted for considerable time. The troops very generally availed themselves of the opportunity presented to enjoy a much-needed bath. All the regiments of the division, having loaded their guns soon after departing from Washington, their officers deciding that they should either discharge them or get rid of the loads by drying the cartridges, a number also took occasion at Monocacy to indulge in target firing. It was amusing to see how these inexperienced marksmen, many of them firing guns for the first time in their lives, often missed not only the target, but even the large tree on which it was placed. Humphrey's column pushed on, resuming forced marching, being prodded by the fiery general and his staff. The regimental and company officers also stimulated the men by referring to the reports that McClellan's death grapple with Lee made it imperative that every man of Humphrey's division should join the main Union army to accomplish an assured Union victory over their Confederate troops. The scenes at Monocacy were the first real evidence of war and its blighting effects that the new troops of Humphrey's division had witnessed. At the Monocacy Railroad Junction on the Monocacy River, the railroad bridges had, two days before, been blown up by the Confederates, the timbers, debris, and wreckage of all kinds being plainly visible as Humphrey's column halted close by. Many things that fell under the observation of the 155th were very suggestive of war. The corpse of a black man killed in the blowing up of the bridge was still exposed. It was currently reported that he was the man the Confederates employed to apply the torch which caused the explosion and the destruction of the bridge. Near this point, another surprising spectacle awaited Humphrey's men on their forced march to reinforce McClellan's army, then engaged with the enemy. This was the presence of 12,000 prisoners of war, captured and paroled by the Confederates at Harper's Ferry. They were all Ohio regiments, who had been captured by Stonewall Jackson and paroled by him not to take up arms until duly exchanged. This large body of Union troops, thus paroled at this critical period, marching to the rear instead of to the front, appeared sad 
and many of the men paroled betrayed despondency as they spoke of the great prowess and skill of Stonewall Jackson. As the paroled prisoners passed by the 155th Regiment, who had so shortly before left Pittsburgh for the front, sanguine in their expectations of defeating and capturing the Confederates, the effect may be more easily imagined than described. The incident was certainly one which tended to chill the ardor of the most enthusiastic patriot at that time. No doubt the chronic dread of uncovering Washington still haunted General-in-Chief Halleck, and had much to do in influencing his orders on the advance of McClellan's army against the Confederate forces invading Maryland. It was well known that General McClellan, on being restored by President Lincoln to the command of the Army of the Potomac, had insisted that Harper's Ferry was of no strategic importance, and should be evacuated so that the 12,000 troops garrisoning that post, under Colonel Mills, should unite with his army immediately in the pursuit of Lee in Maryland. President Lincoln referred General McClellan's request to General Halleck, and General McClellan, before leaving Washington, accompanied by Honorable William H. Seward, Secretary of State, waited on General Halleck to secure authority to evacuate Harper's Ferry and to have its garrison join McClellan's army in its new campaign. Halleck indignantly closed his ears to McClellan's appeals, dissenting wholly from his view and emphatically declared that Harper's Ferry was a very Gibraltar of strength and defense, and insisted that it was the utmost importance strategically, and that not a man from it could be spared to join McClellan's army operating in Maryland against the main army of Lee. In less than one week, the folly of Halleck's views were demonstrated by the capture without difficulty of Harper's Ferry by Stonewall Jackson, and the consequent surrender and paroling of 12,000 Union troops. It was probably in consequence of Halleck's orders that Humphrey's division of new troops, 8,000 strong, was halted for a whole day near Frederick on this forced march to join McClellan's army, and that this unfortunate delay prevented their reaching Antietam until the day following the great battle. It is needless to state that General Humphreys chafed intensely under this new order from Washington, required him to halt in camp while almost within sound of the constant cannonading at Antietam while the battle was in progress. However, the authorities in Washington on the afternoon of September 17th reconsidered their action and, when too late, allowed Humphrey's division to break camp and resume its march to join McClellan's army after losing a day near Frederick. We're going to stop right there on page 72. We'll pick up where we left off next week. I'm starting to figure out what I want my length of time to be while recording this podcast. And I always think it's going to be a half hour, but sometimes I just want to keep reading because it's more interesting. But we're going to stop at a half hour, I think, from here on out. So you'll know that if an episode is 45 minutes long, then 15 minutes of it is just me talking about other things. However, I do plan on having all of my important announcements at the end of the episode, right after I finish reading, like I'm doing now. So that way you can listen to it and then dip out when you're ready. Um, that way, if I have 10 more minutes of talking, you don't need to worry about it. After much discussion with those around me who are African-American, I wanted to take a moment of time to talk about racial slurs in these books. Everyone is to know that I'm replacing all forms of racial language, one for one, with the smallest change that I can when I refer to men or women as a black man or men or women and woman. 
I'm doing so because a racial out-of-date word or words are no longer needed in the context for these readings, and this podcast should be relaxing historical experience and not exposing racial trauma to my listeners. After all, you can go read the book yourself if you want. This is how I plan on doing it, and I will be using this going forward for all my books. On a smaller note, I wanted to talk about when these books talk about contraband, the writers are talking about escaped slaves. As early on in the war, the Union Army had much confusion in the conflict about what to do with persons, and they are, without a doubt, persons, who were wrongly considered at the time uh, escaped property. So that's what those are in response to. In other more boring notes, I had the pleasure and honor of serving in the Marine Corps infantry as a younger man, and it pleases me greatly to see soldiers of the American War suffered just as I did, which means that our universal suffering reaches across time, and that's very unique. Um, although we had the advances of technology to help us, reading about recruits performing for doctors, like in the last episode, just tickles me pink. As I remember myself, duck walking across the floor in front of my own group of doctors who were poking and prodding. So if my voice wavers from time to time, especially as the soldiers retell stories and memories in these books, such as on their long marches, they so very clearly match my own as only being separated by time that I could swear I knew these men. We uh, are just warming up in the story of the 155th Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry Regiment, so I hope you stick around for next week. Please like and subscribe my podcast, War of the Rebellion, Stories of the American Civil War. Give me the amount of stars or ratings that you think I deserve, as it will really help me out with people being able to find the podcast. And with that, my friends, have a fantastic week, and we'll see you in the next episode. Lies the heart that beats so true. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. No more the bugle calls the weary one. Rest, noble spirit, in thy grave alone. They will find you and know you amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. He cried, give me water and just one little crumb. And my mother, she will bless you through all the years to come. Go tell my sweet sister, so gentle, good and true, that I'll meet her up in heaven or in my faded coat of blue. No more the bugle calls the weary one. Rest, noble spirit, in thy grave alone. They will find you and know you amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded